Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's great to see you. Hey, can we show some hospitality? Because, you know, we're one church that meets in, like, all these different locations. And we also have people online. Let's just say hello and welcome everybody in. So Merry Christmas, Edgewood. Merry Christmas, Aberdeen. Second year for Aberdeen. Merry Christmas, Abingdon, Mountain Road, and online. Glad you're here, everybody. Glad you're with us. Um, so are you surviving the weather? The, the weather outside is frightening. Uh, is, is this bad weather we're having? I have trouble telling sometimes. I'm just kidding. So, so I grew up in Minnesota, and I heard about this, this time in Minnesota where it was pretty cold. And this woman calls her husband. And she says, honey, the car won't start. He's like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, it's strange. You know, the dummy lights are working, but, but like, it just won't turn over. I think it's too cold. He says, oh, it's really... And she says... It's kind of crazy because on the dashboard, there's a little picture of like a symbol of a man sitting on a toilet. And he's like, what? Send me a picture. So, so she did. And, uh, you know, I love the delayed reaction. It sort of works through to the slow people. Some of you are like, I don't get it. It is a man on the toilet. You know, it's funny. It's funny. When you look at things a certain way, you kind of get locked in on it. Like you're used to seeing it as a certain way. And it's hard sometimes to see it any other way. And in fact, so what we've been doing around here in recent weeks is we've been looking at the Christmas story. And I think we tend to look at it a certain way. But we've been learning that, you know, the Bible actually shows us some really interesting kind of behind-the-scenes looks at Christmas that helps us see it in a whole lot different way. But most of the time, when we think of the Christmas story, the classic Christmas story, we tend to think of that scene like Charlie Brown did, right, out of the Gospel of Luke, where you've got mother with child. In fact, here's, here it is. Luke chapter 2, uh, the punchline's kind of in verses 6 and 7. While they were there, where? In Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth, she being Mary, to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth, cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And it's hard not to hear that and kind of just get warm and fuzzy and think of the way we're used to thinking of Christmas. And when you do, you look a little further, and there's a few surprises, actually, in the Christmas story. When you think of the usual cast of characters, I mean, we've got a little, we've got a, a nativity set right here, and the usual cast of characters actually contains a few surprises. When you look close, you've got, of course, the baby, but when you think about it, this is God Almighty in human flesh, down to a human burping and, and pooping like the rest of us, right? And, and yet born to what appeared to be out of wedlock, a family with no money, and then laid in a feed trough. And the shepherd guy, he's here. Shepherds, as some of us have come to learn, were the uneducated, uncouth, unwanted, redneck hillbillies of their day, not even welcome in the temple, and yet this guy who lives in a van down by the river, so to speak, is the one that the angels appeared to first to say God's here. And then the wise men, we probably wouldn't have quite been there yet, but here they are in the nativity. And you got to remember, we three kings of Orient are from like modern day Afghanistan. These guys don't even worship the same God. They are from the wrong religion. They're astrologers. They followed a star, which means they, they sort of ended up at the feet of Jesus by reading the daily horoscope. 
And then there's Joseph. How's he ever going to afford a family? He's just a poor carpenter, blue-collar guy. And then Mary. Wasn't that long ago she was playing with baby dolls of her own. Scholars think she might have been 13 to 15 years old. And here she is holding one of her own right now. It's pretty remarkable. There are some surprises in there. And maybe the punchline is, as you look through it, is that God comes to unlikely people and works through unlikely people. So so if you feel like it's unlikely that God would ever come to you or want anything to do with you or, you know, be able to do anything through you, well, then... Christmas is a story that you might be interested in, you know? There's a lot of surprises in in the Christmas story. I think there'll be even some surprises in here right now, and those listening to me online. God loves surprises. I think some of you are surprised you're even here. (laughs) It's like, can't believe I'm in church. There's a surprise, and some of you might be surprised to hear that, you know, in the next little while, you might even hear something that you recognize as maybe like God nudging you to come home. Or some of you might be in a kind of rut in your life, a stuck place, and you might be surprised that there's a sort of sense of hope rising in your spirit in the next little bit where you feel a clarity about what's next and some hope because that's what God does. There's lots of surprises in the Christmas story. But still, I think for the most part, we tend to look at that scene that we're familiar with, lock in on it, and we see it as warm and fuzzy. But was it? I mean, we, we even sing the song. We say, have yourself a... Not bad. But I want to I tell you that when you look at the Bible, actually, Christmas was not little. It was big. And it wasn't merry. It was, there was conflict. Or we say, silent night, holy night, all is, all is. But, it, but I'm telling you, it wasn't calm. It was tense, and it wasn't bright. It was dark. And you know what? In other words, the original Christmas story happened in a world a lot like the times we live in right now. And in in a world that a lot of us are living in personally. Like, Like some of us came here today, and there's a lot of, maybe you've got some tension in your life and some dark places in your life. And some of us are carrying around a big load. There's a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of hurt. Maybe you've got a lot of that going on in your life right now, and you're all kind of knotted up with stuff. And if so, well, then this story is exactly for you. I would say to you, first of all, you're not alone. Second of all, you're in the right place. And third of all, let's look at the Christmas story through a different lens today. And and I really believe if you kind of open your head a little bit, like open your heart and your, your head to a new concept, you might think about not only the Christmas story in a way you never have, you might think about God. And Jesus, in a way you never have. And if you do that, you'll look at your pain and your problems in a completely different way as well. And I think a lot of us need that. So, back to creative writing class in high school. You know that every great story has basically the same three ingredients, right? There's conflict. you got to have a conflict to have a good story. Am I right? Like even the Hallmark Channel knows that, all right? But then you got to have a protagonist, and then you got to have an antagonist. 
right? You got to have a hero and a villain and the conflict between them. You got to have a good guy and a bad guy, right? Every single story has all that stuff going on. I mean, even think about some of the, the classic Christmas movies and stuff that we celebrate. Let's uh, think about it for a second. From, uh, from It's a Wonderful Life. You've got George Bailey. He's your hero. Well, then there's that mean old banker, Mr. Potter. He's your villain. Am I right? See how that works? How about this one? A Christmas Carol. From A Christmas Carol, you got Bob Cratchit, right? But who's his nemesis? Ebenezer Scrooge. Or how about Cindy Lou Who and all of Whoville? Who do they have to put up with? The Grinch, of course, and of course, one of the classic Christmas movies of all time, Die Hard. You've got, you've got John McClane and his nemesis. Who is it? Come on, people. Hans Gruber. How many of you know that Die Hard is a Christmas movie? Come on. It ain't Christmas till that guy falls out of the Nakatomi Tower, I'm telling you, okay? So you got conflict and a good guy and a bad guy, and it's there. Have you ever stopped to think about why every story has those same elements? I'll tell you why. Because it's reality. It's just mirroring the way the world actually is, the way, the way that life is. And so the Christmas story isn't a myth or a false story. It's, it's a mirror of reality as well. And it contains these same three elements, a hero and a villain, and, and conflict. Conflict, conflict. You ever thought about why, for example, the gospel says when it tells that story and the shepherds are out there in the field, it was a great company, a great heavenly host of angels appeared. You ever thought about that? Why were the angels scared out of their minds? I mean, excuse me, they weren't scared. Why were the shepherds scared out of their minds? Because they saw this heavenly host. I mean, so God could have sent one like Clarence, you know, from It's a Wonderful Life down there to, to get the message through, but he didn't do that. He sent this Heavenly host, you, ever, you, know what a, you know what a heavenly host, you know what a host is? It's a military term. That's what that is. It's, this is an army, in other words. This isn't a Baptist choir like floating around in the sky singing Christmas carols. This is an armed battalion. A full brigade of fierce fighting warrior angels who are showing up ready to kick some butt. That's what's going on in the Christmas story. God is sending in troops. Why? God is crossing the border. God is making an invasion happen. Why? Because, friends, this is war. Christmas is a war story. Now, that's a little shocking for us, but it's true. These angels, they're not singing lullabies to the baby. They're, they're shouting a war cry because they know that God created everything good. God said, good, 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 very good. And then through our own pushback, thinking we're smarter than God, and we all do, and through the entrance of the enemy, everything got screwed up. And look around, look in your heart, look in the news. Everything is screwed up, right? We got evil and wickedness and sin, and, and, and everything, is, everything is harder in the world. There's pain, there's abuse, there's bullies, there's... There's sorrow, there's divorce, there's death, there's disease, there's racism, there's pollution, there's all this pain and poverty and ugliness around us, and it's infiltrated even the systems and the way that things work, and God says, enough, it's not what I had in mind, this is war. I love the way 1 John 3.8 puts it. It says it just baldly. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the, the devil's work. Now, he's not going to do that by having a conversation with him. This is war. Now the devil, 
in, in Scripture is called by a lot of different names, and some of you are wondering, I don't know if I believe in the devil, you know, I'm too smart for that or whatever. It's like, well, just ask yourself if you think evil is real. Ask yourself if you think school shootings are real. Ask yourself if you think injustice is real. Ask yourself if you think selling kids into sex slavery is real. Ask yourself if you think, you know, uh, people dying of hunger is real. Ask yourself if bullying is real. Ask yourself if all that's real and it's undeniably real unless you're part of some wacky religion that tries to pretend it's not. But we all know better because it is real. And it's in clear conflict with forces of good that we also can see not only on the news but feel in our own heart, can't we? We know it. So that's why he goes by all these different names because that force is there in the world. And he's called the prince of darkness because he doesn't like light and truth and good. And he's called the adversary because he's against you. Because God loves you and you're made in his image, not the devil's image. You're made in God's image and God doesn't like you for that reason. He's called the deceiver, the father of lies, because he has a way of whispering through systems and voices in our ears and getting in our head and telling us we're not worth anything, feeding us all kinds of lies. He's described as a roaring lion who prowls around kind of looking for who he can pick off and we've all seen it happen. And he wreaks havoc in your life and your family if you let him. The Bible says he's here to kill and destroy. He's a thief. He wants to kill your joy. He wants to kill your peace. He wants to steal your hope. Some of us have seen that happen, and we're experiencing it right now. When, when the angels come talking about peace on earth, he doesn't want anything to do with that. Joy to the world, and, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with any of that. And he knows he can't get at God, but he can get at you, and that's his way of getting at God. He doesn't care about you, but if he gets at you, that's his way of getting at God. And you start talking this way. Most of us are like, well, I never thought about that guy showing up in the Christmas story. Well, check this out. I want to read to you today a little bit of the Christmas story from maybe a part of the Bible you're not used to thinking about. And I hope you're all not mad at me when this is over. But we've probably never heard the Christmas story quite this way, but it's there. And I want to read it from the book of Revelation, which is actually the last book of the Bible. Now, even people that don't know a lot about church, and I know a lot of you, maybe that's you, you know, you're not really a church person, that's great. Um, we hear something about the book of Revelation, and you might have known. It's kind of filled with bizarre images and symbolism. It's kind of a genre of literature that we don't really use much anymore. But the book of Revelation gets its name because it's essentially God saying, I'm going to reveal some stuff to you that you don't always see. You're all caught up looking at the pain and the problems right in front of you on earth. Let me reveal, let me pull back the veil and show you what it looks like from my heavenly perspective. That's what the book of Revelation really is. It was written to some people who lived in about A.D. 95. The emperor was a guy named Domitian, and he got his jollies out of killing Christians. He said, hey, he thought he was a god, so he's like, everybody bow down to me. The Christians are like, nah, I can't, can't do that. So he starts killing Christians. And he makes life really, really miserable. Hell on earth, literally, for them. And life's hard. And they're going, what gives? This stinks. Life sucks. This, I'm really struggling here. God, what's up? Help us out here. I don't like this anymore. And in the middle of that environment, God says, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to give you a revelation. I'm going I'm to pull back the veil and help you see all the stuff you're going through from my perspective. And thus the book of Revelation. He gives it to a guy named John over on an island called Patmos, a few miles off of Ephesus. And he says, I want you to share it with everyone because it's going to be an encouragement. Now, it's, here's what's ironic. It's the book of Revelation today most people find kind of mysterious and scary. And that's exactly the opposite of what it was intended for. It was meant to be very clear and really encouraging. 
And it was to everyone who heard it back then. And I think it will be to you in a couple minutes. So, okay, kiddos, gather around. Let's hear the Christmas story from the book of Revelation. Maybe in a way we've never heard it before. Revelation chapter 12. And again, the literature is kind of a symbolic imagery full of that, but it's telling the story. And be prepared to meet a character that most of us probably don't have in our nativity sets. You ready? You ready? Here we go. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Then I, that's John, he's saying, I I saw this vision and here's what I saw. I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman, there's the first character, and then it describes her as this great magnificent woman, clothed with the sun and the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That's how amazing she is. And she was pregnant, that's interesting. And she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving. So you've got a pregnant woman. Of course, our minds immediately go to Mary. Fair enough. But it also seems to represent all of God's people. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red, what? Dragon. An enormous red dragon with, and it's described to show how big and scary it is and powerful. Seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Symbolic language to say this thing's awful. It's gnarly. Wow. Here's where it gets really creepy. Verse 4. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth, meaning that it's wreaking havoc. Who put the stars in the sky? According to the biblical image, God does, and so he's messing up everything God does. And then the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. We certainly have some conflict here. The dragon knows that God's plan is to rescue and redeem through this one who would come to save his people from their sins and to help bring the world back to rights. And he didn't want anything to do with that because right now he was kind of operating as the prince of the world. And so he's going to nip that in the bud before it gets off the ground and eat that baby before it gets a chance to do anything. And this, my friends, is part of the Christmas story from the book of Revelation. Well, are you having a holly jolly Christmas so far? So what do you got? You got a woman who's pregnant, about to give birth. And what else you got? A big, ugly, gnarly dragon lurking and circling and waiting and licking his chops for the moment the baby's born so he can gobble it up and eat it. So, friends, what that means is if you take this seriously, the the nativity set and the Christmas story might actually play out maybe a little more like this. We've got... The baby and the mama, what are we missing? A dragon, don't worry. We got a dragon. (laughs) The dragon belongs right here in the nativity set, which means Christmas actually plays out a little bit like this.
think you kind of get the picture. All right, who's in the mood for some eggnog? <laughs> Guys, seriously, what a different image of Christmas. It's trying to remind us that Jesus, Jesus didn't come to be your life coach, to pat you on the back and make life a little easier for you on weekends. Jesus came. Jesus came to win the war. That's it. He came to win the war. Evil's a thing. It has to be reckoned with. And God says, well, I'll reckon with it for you because you can't. That's Christmas. And whether you know it or not or like it or not, you have a mortal enemy. You will. We face it through the face of death at least. We at least have to not deny death. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be consider yourself spiritual, but you can't fake this whole thing. We're all going to face death, which is the ultimate weapon of the enemy. Who wants to kill and destroy and destroy our, 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 our joy, our peace, our hope, your self-esteem, steal your purpose. He wants to do all of that and lead the world astray. And, and finally, Jesus says, when he comes, actually the mouth of Jesus is what he said, John 12, 31. He says, all right, enough. Now is the time that this prince of world needs to be driven out. Because Satan has known about this conflict from the beginning of time. Think about this. The same dragon, if you'll think about it, appeared to another woman to harm her offspring at the very beginning of time, according to the Christmas, I mean, the, the Christian story. It appeared as a serpent that time to a woman named Eve, right? And if you remember, that tells the story of sin getting introduced into the world. And God dished out consequences. They're called curses. And we live with some, and the woman lives with some. And guess what? God dished out consequences to the dragon. And here's what it says in the first book of the Bible. Old Testament, Genesis chapter 3, verses 15. God says, all right. I will put enmity now between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. But here's the thing, he says. I'm going to raise up one one day and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God is saying, all right, dragon man, you have made a mess of things. Way back in the garden, he's saying, you have screwed up the world real good. Good job. But I'm going to raise up a champion, a ruler, a king one day from this woman, see to this woman, and, and he's going he's gonna to reign and rule. And you're going to think you're going to harm him, and you're going to think you're going to really give him a mortal blow, but it's going to feel nothing more like him than a little poke on the bottom of his foot, and he's going to crush your little head. And all that was told on the first page of the Bible, the first prediction about who Jesus is and how the whole thing would play out, right there. And Satan knows it, and he knew it. So he's doing everything. Think of, the, think of the whole bloody tale of human history. It's nothing other than this battle between good and evil. It's why we tell it in fairy tales and stories, because we want to know, is it possible the good guys win? Is it possible there is such a thing that's actually real in the world where there's a goodness that's more powerful than evil? And you look through history and you look through the biblical story. It's all just this battle going on. And are people going to be led astray to a darkness or are they going to be led astray, to, or led over to a good side? And this, this enemy's been at work trying to lead people astray a thousand ways and a thousand times. I mean, you know, he whispered. This is the same one who whispered in the ear of Pharaoh, the same way he whispered in the ear of Eve. And he told Pharaoh way back in the Old Testament, kill all the babies in Egypt. But then at the last minute, God sent a deliverer named Moses, and the story goes on, and Satan failed. 
And he whispered in the ear of Herod, King Herod, in the time of Jesus, kill all the babies, said it again. Go get the babies, go get the babies. And God sent an angel, and David, I mean, Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt, and the dragon failed again. And, and he whispered in the ear of, of, of Jesus himself, who was tempted in every way like we are, but yet out in the wilderness, the dragon failed again. And he whispered in the ear of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Romans and guys named Pilate and said, kill the innocent lamb of God. So they had him arrested and the dragon got closer and they had him put through a mock trial and the dragon got closer. And then they unjustly accused him and they condemned him and they hanged him on a cross and the dragon was getting closer and he hung up there in the afternoon sky and the lifeblood flowed out of him and he died and the dragon thought, finally, I have accomplished my objective and I have achieved my goal and he celebrated and he prevailed for at least three days. But let me tell you something, the game wasn't over yet. Because on that third day, does anybody know how this story goes? Do you know what happened on the third day? Friends, from deep within the earth, the earth began to rumble and roar because God was not done yet. When there seems to be no way, God makes a way. I'm telling you, I've experienced that in my life over and over again. I've seen it in your life. When your back's against the wall, when there's no way, when you're hosed, when you're done, when you're stuck, when you've got no hope, there's a God who's real in the world. When he's on your side, if he's for you, who can be against you? And that's what happened that time. That's what happened that day. The dragon failed yet again because that big old stone rolled away like a pebble and Satan is a loser. That's the story. Friends, if you're facing problems that seem so monumental, you look at the world as this horrible place that just is never going to get any better, it might not be that your problems are so big. It may be that the God you're looking at is just so small. And you need to get a fresh picture of the real God. Take a look at the story. Back to Revelation. Here's what it says. Here's how it unrolls. Verse 5. So the dragon is crouching and waiting, right? She gave birth to a son, a male child. And this one would, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter, a symbol of undisputed power. This baby's not going to have a baby rattle in its hand. It's going to have an iron scepter taking his rightful place on the throne. And her child wasn't gotten by a dragon. It was God snatched up the child to his throne. So in this figurative way of describing it, skips the whole life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and says, we'll just put him on the throne because that's where he is now. And then the woman is taken care of and protected. That's us. Verse 7. A war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against this dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. They fought back, but he was not what? He was not strong enough. And what does that say? What? They lost. One more time. They lost. They lost. Spoiler alert. Here's how the story ends. They lost. They lost. Friends, that's what Christmas is reminding us. Who wins? And who loses? It goes on to say in verse 9 that the great dragon was eventually hurled down. It goes on to say in 10 and 11 that this, this Messiah came. And verse 11, it says that they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. And this is a nod to what Jesus did on the cross. Now hang with me here. This is, this is, this is tough. 
Jesus came to win a war. And on earth it looked like a baby in a manger and it looked like a guy on a cross and all that stuff. But here's what the Bible's saying. In another unseen realm, here's what's happening. Colossians 2 says it this way. When you were still dead in your sins, and that was all of us, okay, God made you alive with Christ. Why? He forgave us all our sins. How did that happen? He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He had taken it away. Wow, he nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities. There's a spiritual war that happened that was won on the cross. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. It looked like a failure, but not so fast. Satan had all of us in his grip. We're condemned, unclean. God steps in, disarms, and rescues us and offers for us something we can't get for ourselves, which is forgiveness. Only God can do that. That's a powerful bit of truth. It's really good news. Now, you might say, now, Ben, wait a second. If the war's already over and God won and the dragon's defeated, why are we still here? And why is the world so messed up? Why does so much evil exist in this war-torn, sin-infested world? Well, Jesus says, and in fact, the book of Revelation says, one day we're going to live in a new heaven and a new earth. All who are with Christ are going to enjoy a place where there is no more suffering or pain or sorrow, nor death, no dragon, one day. But then in the meantime, Jesus is just awaiting for everyone to make the decision of which side they're on. God's not going to force any of us to get on board. He doesn't make anyone follow him. He wants there to be a real relationship, a real choice. So he gives a window of time to say, hey, get on my team. Get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you will, to decide who will trust him before that day comes when we all get sorted out and stood up before God to decide if we had faith in God or not, which means there's a period of freedom and an opt-in, voluntary opt-in right now. But that also means... There's freedom for our enemy, Satan, to have a little more influence on this whole world. So in the meantime, Jesus even said, you're going to have some trouble for a while. And we do, because the enemy is still kicking, so to speak. Back to Revelation, verse 12, 17, here's what it says. He's ticked about it. He knows his time is short. And so the dragon is enraged at the woman, that's representing all of us at this point, and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, all of us. And those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony. It's, I've heard it described this way, which I think is accurate. Remember D-Day in World War II? Think of Saving Private Ryan, right? When, when the soldiers stormed the beaches of Normandy, they, they established that beachhead. For all intents and purposes, the war was decided at that point. The die was cast, and we all knew the outcome of it, even though it wasn't officially over. The war was decided. It just wasn't... Over. There were still battles to fight and real bullets flew and people died. What, what the Bible is teaching here is that what Jesus has done on the cross has decided the outcome. And God wins. But it's really not over yet and why we still have some suffering and sorrow in this old life. So we're not out of the woods yet. And in the meantime, well, just be alert. First Peter says, hey, stay alert. Watch out. You do have an enemy. He prowls around. He wants to hurt you. And so stand firm against him. 
Resist the devil, he says, and, and, and he'll flee from you. Put on all the armor you can get a hold of from God, and God gives a bunch. Ephesians 6 says, you know what, we're not fighting against flesh and blood here. This isn't just normal, you know, hand-to-hand combat, but against evil rulers and authorities. And there's an unseen world that's actually at work in our own world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits, which actually explains a few things, doesn't it? When next time you have a big argument with your wife or an unexplained controversy with, with a friend... You can remember, they're not, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. They're not really the enemy. We're being played. You ever feel like that? It's like, why am I even yelling at this person? I, I love them. You ever think about that? It's because we, don't, we have enemies that aren't actually flesh and blood. The people that you hate aren't really the people you're writing about on Facebook. The way God made us, we're, we're meant to be together. But you can call on Jesus to help us in those moments and realize that, man... Sometimes we're fighting against something that's really not even seen. And that explains a lot of our actions sometimes. Satan's the one who makes us feel like, man, we just need a little more Jack Daniels. And speaking of which, think about addictions. Where do you think all that comes from? That's our pursuit. That's our, it's our good desire sometimes just bent out of shape or taken to extreme. We become addicted and it ends up messing with our lives. We can't ever just say, well, the devil made me do it. But you know what? It's wise to be aware that there is a dragon who knows your weakness and your chinks in your armor and who knows how to climb up the wall of your defenses. And if you think you're too strong or too smart, you're going to outrun him or outsmart him, then you're easy prey. That's why in recovery work, we call this the higher power. And if you know your higher power has a name and his name is Jesus and he's stronger than the dragon, he can help you with that battle. And we want to help you with that as well. This church is filled with people who have seen victory in that battle, in the name of the same lamb that's victorious over the dragon. And so if you're struggling with grief or after a divorce, some kind of loss or trouble in your life, I mean, we can help you with that to get in touch with the, the powerful work, the healing work of Jesus, which is just a foretaste of what's coming one day. In the meantime, we don't need to live in fear, nothing like that. John 16 says, Jesus, this is the words of Jesus. He says, in this world you're going to have trouble, but don't worry, I have, what's the word? I've overcome the world. Yeah. First John 4, the one who is in you is greater than the one who's in the world. The one who's in you is Jesus. So here's the question. Is he in you? He doesn't get there without an invitation. So Jesus came to win the war. But here's the last thing I want to leave you with. Jesus came also to win our hearts. He came to win our hearts. Like, he wants a relationship. Like, he wants, he wants you to opt in, to choose him. He doesn't, he's not going to force anyone. He's not pushy like that. He'll let you do your thing. Choose your side. But God so loved the world that he came and he gave. And what he's looking for is not just affection or sentimental mush. He's looking for someone who can reason this out and say, I want to be on the winning team. He wants loyalty. Because he came as a ruler. He came as a king with an iron scepter. He is, he's not just a baby, he's Lord. Which means that you've got to make a decision. Like every one of us has a throne in our heart. And the question is, who's sitting on the throne of your heart? It's either you or someone else or something else that you're answering to. Or it's, or it's Jesus where you're trying to say, I'm going to try to live my life in the way that is good and true and light. What a shame if we come to the Christmas story and, and we just sort of think of little baby Jesus, you know, Talladega Nights Jesus. And that's just all. You know, we just think that's what he is, a baby in a manger, a little harmless, helpless babe. 
Friends, let me just close this out by going back to Revelation. Here's the Jesus that's pictured in the Bible, okay? Take your eyes off of this one for a minute and, and just listen to this. Revelation 19, verses 11 to following. Last vision, I saw heaven standing open and there was a white horse, a symbol of power and authority and brilliance, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who's that? It's Jesus. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, a a nod to the cross. And his name is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and he's still standing at the end. The armies of heaven are following him, ready for action, ready to be discharged. They're also riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, a symbol of the purity of what it will be like in that day. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword, a symbol of his power and authority to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. He's ready to do this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written and say it with me. King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, that's the message of Christmas. Christmas is not a little helpless baby in a manger. It's about a big, strong, kick-butt Savior who shows up on a white horse with a sword in his mouth and a tattoo on his thigh. And his name isn't, isn't anything other than King of kings and Lord of lords, which leaves only really one question. Whose side are you on? Because everybody chooses. Doesn't do enough to say, well, my grandma went to church. Doesn't do enough to say, well, I'm not against anybody. So, no, whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? This is the story of Christmas. Jesus came to win the war. That part's decided. But he also came to win hearts. So, is that part decided for you? Because as he wins hearts one at a time, he builds communities and he, he puts little forces of good into the world to, to bring actually the very world that he promises will come. I want to be on that side. Is that part decided for you? You know, the Bible says one day every knee will bow. All a Christian is, is someone who says, I'm going to bow my knee now to Jesus. Because I'm just crazy enough to believe that even though it looks hopeless, I think there's hope. Even though I think evil sometimes looks powerful, I believe that God is more powerful. Even though I think the story looks like it's over, I believe it's not over because God gets the last word. And that's all a Christian is, is someone who who believes all that. Because one day everyone's going to know it. But if you're willing to say, I've analyzed things and I, I think this, I think good wins. That's what a Christian is. And you think that good has a capital G on it. And it comes from the heart of God. Let me leave you with this. Some of you know that uh, in the sporting world, something rather amazing happened recently, which made people like me, who happen to be Minnesota Viking fans, really happy. Let me explain. Now, you know, around here, we're, this is Baltimore Colt territory back in the day. How many big old Johnny U fans in the Baltimore Colts, right? They were our team, right? And then what happened? They up and left in the middle of the night, and now they're in Indianapolis. And we all know that now the Indianapolis Colts They're the dragon, right? Am I right? They're the enemy. Come on, give me an amen. We don't like those Colts. No, we don't. Well, recently, they were playing God's favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings. And as it happened, 
they took it to us and they were beating us bad. They're hurting us. They were kicking us. They were pushing us when we were down. It was miserable. It was hopeless. In fact, you know what? The game wasn't even over yet. At halftime, do you know what the score was? 33 to zero. Yeah, that game is over. I'm telling you, it was so depressing. It was tense in my house. I'm telling you, very quiet. Sitting there despondently in the armchair. People were turning off the TV, leaving the stadium because no one's ever come back from something like that, ever, in the history of the whole NFL. But in the fullness of time, they went to the locker room and someone said, behold, we're only down five touchdowns. And then this happened. It's 33-0 Indianapolis. Second and 12 from the Vikings, 33. Empty backfield. Cousins out of the shotgun. Throws over the middle. It's caught by K.J. Osborne on the run. To the 40-30. To the 20. Dragging a Colt to the 10. Yes! Finally some positivity, and I don't care what the score is. Third and goal from the two. Cousins shotgun looks left. Throws left. K.J. caught touchdown. Touchdown Vikings. It is K.J. Well, I'm glad we got a touchdown, so it's not so embarrassing, you know? Is that another touchdown? It is. Well, that's extra nice, because now it doesn't look like it's such a drubbing. That's respectable. Oh, look at that. Another touchdown. Well, this is good because there's not enough time and we still can't win, but it at least looks better. Yeah, I'm glad we scored a couple touchdowns. Even though we're still going to lose, I think it's, it's better what's happening here. Now, wait a second. 28-36. Oh, look at him go. Wait a second. Wait a second. What's happening? Oh, they're going to get... No. Oh, he's going to go... Oh, no. He's touchdown. Now I'm interested. Surely there's not enough time. There's only two minute wait. We really need this two point conversion here. We really need it. Holy cow, it's tie ball game. 36-36. Oh my goodness, time expired. We go to overtime, they give us the ball. We come down, seven seconds left, the kick is up. you guys come on give it up let me tell you what if we can get riled up about a ball game we can get riled up about the Christmas story because it is the greatest comeback story ever and the hero isn't some guy with a name on his jersey is tattooed right on his thigh his name is Jesus he's the king of kings and lord of lords and he's saying to you right now I know it's tough down there I know it's hard hang in there don't you quit don't you worry I'm large and I'm in charge and I'm leading history and I'm in your life if you'll let me in. So here's the question. If you're on Jesus' team, you win. Whose side you on? There's only one kingdom that has a future. In the story, we're told that the dragon is hurled out of the picture. There's only one kingdom that has a future. Whose side are you on? Declare it. Name it. Whose side you on? Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for what you have done through Jesus. 
We pray that you'll meet us tonight wherever we are. We're all over the map probably on things, but Lord, we all come before you knowing that we need good news and we need, we need someone to take care of our dragons. And we thank you that you've done that through Jesus and help us to trust him to do it for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.